Welcome to our Business and Human Rights podcast series. My name is Julia Grothaus. I'm a partner in the Linklater's dispute resolution practice in Frankfurt and part of the firm's ESG team. I'm joined today by my fellow partners Jean Chargé and Jeremiah, as well as managing associate Bora Hobeke, who are also part of the DR team, yet based in Paris and Amsterdam, and who also focus on ESG-related topics. In addition, we're delighted to have Laurence Uhl with us. Laurence was formerly a partner in Linklater's Frankfurt office and returned to Switzerland in 2016. In Zurich, he established a compliance-focused law firm called Pico Uhl and is therefore exactly the right interview partner for today's topic. Now, what are we going to cover? In this podcast, we'll take stock of where we are today in terms of business and human rights due diligence from a legislative perspective. On EU level, there are only limited instruments up until now. On the one hand, there are reporting instruments such as the 2014 CSR directive that outlines binding reporting obligations um, for public interest entities, including non-financial information on their strategies, for example, in the fields of environment, human rights, the fight against corruption, and boardroom diversity. Furthermore, there are rules adopted as part of the sustainable finance package that will soon require institutional investors to disclose how they factor ESG into investment decisions and require them to provide granular information. On the other hand, there is the Conflict Minerals Regulation of 2017 that will enter into force at the beginning of next year. And this regulation is the first act um, at EU level imposing mandatory due diligence on private entities to protect human rights in conflict areas. So an instrument requiring companies not only to report, but to take action. However, in the focus, are thus far only importers of certain metals and minerals originating from conflict-affected and high-risk areas. Now, other than that, there is no European-wide legislation yet, but the EU um, committed to introducing legislation in 2021 and um, to make human rights due diligence in general mandatory for all EU companies. In this context, there is um, an ongoing consultation on supply chain due diligence that started in late October and will run until early February 2021. Um, before covering um, this consultation in one of our next podcasts, we thought it would be useful to take a look at existing regimes and forthcoming legislative changes. Now, as many of you will know, there is no piece of legislation in Germany yet, and there is no concrete proposal on the table. Following political activity um, over the last years, that speeded up over the summer, it seems that the plug was pulled out again. And there's considerable resistance in parts of the economy and politics, especially in view of the COVID-19 pandemic. In addition, a German solo effort is considered to be misguided in times where there are parallel discussions at EU level. So we will have to wait and see how this discussion develops in Germany. And for that reason, I'm really happy to be joined by Laurence, Bora, Gerard and Jean-Charles, who will provide us with insights on the situation in France, the Netherlands and Switzerland, where the legal framework um, is much more developed than over here in Germany. Now, turning to Switzerland first, Laurens, the so-called Responsible Business Initiative was rejected on the last November weekend in a nationwide referendum. Could you please give us a short overview of the initiative? What measures did it envisage and why was it ultimately rejected? I'm happy to do so. Thank you very much, Julia. The Responsible Business Initiative was launched in 2016 by a cross-party committee. 
and its aim was to oblige enterprises domiciled in Switzerland to become responsible for breaches of international human rights and international environmental standards, irrespective of where these companies or companies controlled by them were doing business in the world. The initiative required enterprises in Switzerland in particular to conduct a reasonable due diligence regarding the effect on their business on human rights and environmental standards, to take reasonable measures to prevent and stop any such breaches, and to report on a regular basis on the implemented measures. Most controversial was the liability aspect provided by the initiative. And that was that enterprises in Switzerland would have become liable for any breach of said standards by any company controlled by them, irrespective of where this damage had occurred in the world and irrespective of any national laws applying in the relevant jurisdiction. And such control included, obviously, uh, the foreign subsidiaries, but also companies over which the Swiss domicile company had economic um, control. So that included, for instance, um, foreign suppliers who were, to a certain extent, dependent on the Swiss domiciled company. The initiative provided for um, the possibility to avoid such liability by the Swiss company if it was able to prove that it had applied all necessary duty of care. Now, why was this initiative rejected? The fight for and against this initiative was one of the most heavy fights we've seen to date in Switzerland over an initiative, probably comparable to the vote on whether Switzerland should become a member of the EEA or not in 1992. And actually, 50.7% of the votes cast approved the initiative. However, to pass an initiative which amends or changes uh, the Swiss constitution, you not only need the majority of votes cast, but you also need uh, the majority of the Swiss states, the so-called cantons, to approve the initiative. And that was not the case. So that is why the initiative failed and was rejected. I think that the initiative did not fail because of its goals, but of the means by which it wanted to achieve these goals. In particular, the explicit possibility to sue a Swiss domiciled company for breaches of said standards where anywhere in the world by controlled companies was heavily disputed. Further, it was feared that the necessary measures to avoid such liability would put an unreasonable economic burden on Swiss SMEs and thereby cause a competitive disadvantage. And finally, the Swiss Parliament adopted a counter-proposal actually aiming for the same goals, but with different means. Well, thanks, Lawrence. Um, the liability discussion and also um, the aspect you mentioned on the burden on companies in, in terms of practically implementing um, such mandatory supply chain due diligence, those aspects are also front and center here in Germany. Now, as you mentioned, the Swiss Parliament adopted a counter proposal which will enter into force if it's not rejected in a second referendum. 
how does that proposal differ from the responsible business initiative and should companies expect this proposal to enter into force what measures does it provide for and how will small small and medium enterprises be affected well the eye-catching difference is the means of discipline the counter proposal implements the counter proposal is based on market and reputational pressure on companies that do not comply with the set standards, uh, but it does not provide for a separate specific liability base as the initiative did. The counter proposal has two uh, parts which are important for Swiss domicile companies. The first is a duty to report on non-financial aspects, and that will be familiar to all of you. This is comparable to the CSR directive. Such aspects uh, that need to be reported on include environmental, social, and employee aspects, human rights, and corruption. It does not, according to its words, include boardroom diversity. The duty is limited to listed companies and large financial institutions such as banks and insurance companies. The second point the counterproposal um, addresses is a duty to reasonable compliance systems and compliance measures, as well as a reporting duty in respect of conflict minerals and child labor. This includes uh, politics and due diligence of supply chains. This duty is basically addressed to all companies domiciled in Switzerland. However, uh, the Swiss Federal Council will have the possibility and will make use of the possibility to grant exceptions for SMEs that have a low exposure to these risks. The counterproposal also implements a fine of up to 100,000 Swiss francs for companies that report false information or do not publish a report at all. Obviously, that fine will not really impress uh, companies. Companies will, however, more fear uh, being criminally sanctioned and the corresponding damage that this will do to their reputation. Now on your question, will, when will this come into force? In the 100 days following the vote, um, a referendum may be taken against the counter-proposal. However, there is currently no sign that the required minimum 50,000 signatures for the referendum will be obtained. There's not even a sign that anyone is organizing a referendum. So from my point of view, I do expect that this counter-proposal will take effect in 2021. Thanks very much, Lorenz. I think we'll be brief. This was a hugely helpful outlook on what affected companies must expect. Now, we could certainly talk for much longer about the implications, but we also want to cover the situation in the Netherlands and France. So, turning to the Netherlands, similarly to the Swiss counter proposal, the Dutch legislator so far focused on the specific aspect of child labor and opted for a comprehensive mandatory due diligence regulation for that area. Bora, could you please give us an overview of the Dutch child labor due diligence law? Sure, happy to do so. So the Dutch Child Labor Due Diligence Act contains the basic framework of legislative action in the Netherlands to combat 
convent child labor worldwide. So many essential and practical details and requirements of this act uh, are still as of yet unknown. That's because these will be specified only in a government uh, general administrative measures. Uh, this is a uh, document which contains the more specific requirements and details on how this act will in practice be implemented. Uh, the government is expected to work on, this, uh, on these measures over the next year, so in 2021. Uh, and until then, the exact content and uh, effects of the act will be uh, still a bit unclear. So in general, the act imposes a due diligence obligation and reporting obligation. Now we'll address that in a minute. Uh, notably, failing to abide by these obligations may, in worst case scenario, also lead to criminal law enforcement. And Gerard will briefly touch upon that. So generally, the act applies to registered companies, both Dutch and non-Dutch companies, that deliver their products or services to Dutch end users, and also to non-registered companies that do so twice or more a year. The, administrative, the aforementioned administrative measures may contain exemptions for sectors and industries with only a low risk for child labor. So over to the contents, so the obligations contained in the Act. So the due diligence obligation generally requires companies to investigate whether, based on reasonably known and accessible sources, whether a reasonable suspicion exists that its goods or services have been produced using child labor. In respect of the assessment to be conducted, the legislator refers to the International Labor Organization's Child Labor Guidance for Business, which is essentially based on the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. So as to these due diligence obligations, if a suspicion exists that uh, goods or services have been produced using child labor, the company will be required to adopt and implement a plan of action. And that plan of action needs to be approved by the regulator. And Gerard will uh, also touch upon that a bit more. Um, expectedly, the relevant suspicion criteria and requirements as to the action plans will be outlined in, in the administrative measures. And those uh, requirements are expected to be in line with international guidelines, such as the aforementioned UN guiding principles. So finally, the other substantive obligation, this regards a reporting obligation. The reporting obligation requires companies to submit a statement to, reg to the regulatory uh, authorities confirming that they complied with the due diligence obligation in respect of their full supply chains. So that in essence, Julia, uh, are the substantive obligations contained, outlined in, in the Act. Thanks very much, Bora. That, that was a very good overview and it will be interesting to see um, what, what the specific um, well obligations will be once specified by, by the legislator. Najera, um, when does this law enter into force? When will it affect companies? The law was formally adopted in May 2019. However, the entering into force is expected somewhere mid-2022. 
awaiting the finalization of the drafting and the adoption of the administrative measures as mentioned by Bora. The administrative measures will be drafted on the basis of a countrywide evaluation in relation to the topic at hand. In a way, the law has certain retroactive effects, and we will discuss this in a minute. The law requires companies to submit their statements or declarations showing compliance with the law six months from the moment the law enters into force, which would bring us to end 2022. So-called foreign companies may have to submit the statement or declaration earlier or later in time. As soon as the law enters into force, a special sanction regime will apply. It should be noted that only complaints submitted by a third party will trigger enforcement. In the end, a fine of 10% of the annual worldwide turnover may be imposed. And if a company is fined twice within five years, imprisonment up to two years of a responsible director may follow. Well, thanks very much, Sarah. These are really um, heavy um, fines and sanctions, and the end of 2022 is not too far in the future. So which measures should companies take to prepare for their upcoming obligations? It may be good to note that the law applies already to contracts regarding the supply of goods or services entered into on or after 13 November 2019, of course, only after the law enters into force. So this is the, the retroactive effects that I spoke about. Therefore, companies currently entering into contracts regarding the supply of goods and services should already, one, assess whether the law applies to them, and two, identify risks of child labor in their production chain. Of course, formally, companies would only need to identify these risks after the entering into force of the law. But it may not be easy to check backwards, which leads to the idea that companies would do so already for contracts entered into on or after 13 November 2019. Even if you are not providing goods or services to end users in the Netherlands, you may wish to assess whether goods or services are provided to companies that are likely to be subject to the law. Finally, we would advise companies to monitor the developments under the Act, in particular regarding the further administrative measures that will follow as described by Bora. Thanks very much, Shara. That's, that's certainly good advice um, and good for companies to keep in mind. Now, why is the Dutch law limited in scope, limited to child labor so far? It's a good question. Originally, the policy of the Dutch government was that the necessary due diligence obligations, in a broader sense, also outside child labor, could be realized through self-regulation and cooperation in the field. Because of the importance of the topic and the ineffectiveness of the system of self-regulation, in particular also in order to secure that consumers would not buy products or services that were procured by child labor, a member of parliament and not the government took the initiative to submit a legislative proposal to parliament, which led in the end to the adoption of the present law. The initiative of the Member of Parliament got the support from the general public and also from companies in the market, such as chocolate company Tony Chocoloni. The law is seen as a first step in this respect, only a first step, recognizing that the self-regulation and cooperation, how much it should be promoted still, may not be sufficient. For the necessary further steps, one awaits the initiatives of the European Union in the first place, 
But only if European initiatives fail will the government take next steps itself for other areas outside child labor. Thanks, Thurad. That, that's interesting to hear. Now, before turning to Jean-Charles, one last question for you, Bora. Does the Dutch legislator have any plans to extend due diligence obligations to other areas of law? So the Dutch government itself does not have any plans to extend due diligence obligations to other areas of law, other than, and then subject to, of course, EU regulations, as you, Julia and Gerard both mentioned already. However, a new initiative from a member of the Dutch parliament was submitted last June. This initiative aims to further enhance corporate social, social responsibility, so more broadly, through legislative actions regarding corporate due diligence obligations. And this initiative has indeed a wider scope, and it focuses on combating specifically modern slavery and environmental damage. Thanks very much, Bora, and, and thanks to both of you. Um, that's very interesting, and, and it will be um, interesting to see how that discussion continues, particularly with view to the parallel legislative efforts on European level. Now, last but not least, let's turn to France, the European pioneer regarding supply chain due diligence. France adopted a broader approach from the outset with its loi de vigilance that is often regarded as a role model for other jurisdictions. Jean-Charles, what is this law about? When did it enter into force? Which companies are concerned? Which obligations do companies have? And what are the legal consequences in case of breaches? Thank you, Julia. Well, it all started with uh, the collapse of the Rana Plaza building in Bangladesh in 2013, uh, which caused uh, more than a thousand deaths. And in this building, in obviously very poor conditions, uh, workers were manufacturing clothes for many international companies, including French companies. And uh, reacting to uh, that catastrophe, uh, French lawmakers um, launched an initiative uh, uh, with respect to the duty of care uh, French com uh, companies uh, should have. This first initiative was even more ambitious. Uh, and it was thought actually too ambitious and too, de too detrimental to uh, French companies' interest as it provided for criminal sanction, uh, presumption of uh, breaches of the, of the obligation in case of uh, an incident, class actions, uh, strict liability. So uh, the government uh, decided to uh, uh, vote a, a counter, to propose a counter project. So this is uh, the current uh, loi sur le devoir de vigilance, and its full English title is the law on the corporate duty of care of parent companies and ordering companies. And in itself, it is already uh, telling. So which are the companies concerned by that? There are two uh, thresholds. It's either a French company that employs at the end of two consecutive financial years, at least 5,000 employees within the company and its direct and indirect subsidiaries and whose head office is located on French territory, or at least 10,000 employees uh, within the company and its direct or indirect subsidiaries whose head office is located on French territory or abroad. 
So what does it mean? It means two things. It means that it's not only French groups that are potentially concerned, uh, foreign group with a large French subsidiary, or with a French subsidiary, which itself has many international subsidiaries, could be concerned. And another issue is that uh, it has an extraterritorial reach by itself. There is no specific list of the companies that are concerned by the law, but it is estimated to uh, between 250 to 300 companies. So we are talking obviously about major uh, companies. So what, what, what is the obligation uh, at stake? So the first obligation obviously is to uh, implement a vigilance plan and uh, make sure it is effective. The vigilance plan must include measures to allow for risk identification and prevention of severe, and the word is important, severe violations of human rights and fundamental freedoms, health risks and serious environmental damages. So three different uh, scopes. And all those risks must result directly or indirectly from the operation of the company itself, of the companies it controls, as well as from the operations of the subcontractors or suppliers with whom it has an established commercial relationship. Um, so, in, in, in effect, it is a, a very broad uh, plan that must be put in place and must remain uh, effective. There are five uh, pillars to uh, the vigilance uh, plan. The first one is a mapping that identifies, analyzes, and ranks the risks. The second one is to set up procedures to assess uh, regularly in accordance with the risk mapping, compliance of your subsidiaries, subcontractors, and so on. Uh, appropriate actions to mitigate the risks uh, or prevent serious violations must also be put uh, in place. A whistleblowing uh, system must also uh, be uh, set up. And uh, finally, uh, a monitoring uh, scheme uh, to monitor the measures uh, implemented and assess their efficiency uh, is, is the fifth pillar of the, of the plan. So that's, that's the implementation of the plan itself, but you also have some reporting uh, obligations uh, with respect uh, to that plan. And uh, this uh, reporting obligation uh, is uh, in, in force uh, since last year uh, only. In, uh, initially, the Loi sur le devoir de vigilance uh, provided for uh, civil sanctions, a civil fine of uh, 10 million and even 30 million uh, euros in case of uh, breaches, uh, which uh, resulted uh, in uh, damage. Uh, however, uh, the uh, Constitutional Council considered that the wording of uh, the law was not uh, specific enough to uh, provide a civil fine, which was akin to a criminal sanction. We thought initially that uh, the lawmakers uh, would uh, amend 
that uh, flow. Uh, but uh, so far, there is no uh, project um, identified in this respect. So there are actually two types of uh, sanctions. Uh, if, uh, uh, if after a period of uh, three months after receiving a formal notice to comply with uh, your obligations, uh, you have not, you may be uh, sentenced by a court to an injunction uh, to comply with such uh, obligations. The other sanction, so to speak, uh, uh, is to be held uh, liable for uh, non-compliance of uh, your uh, obligations under the loi sur le devoir de vigilance. Uh, or uh, worse, uh, in case of an incident, uh, if uh, this uh, incident uh, was caused by your breach uh, of your obligations under the loi sur le devoir de vigilance. But obviously, the question of causality here is expected to be a very tough one. The standard will be hard uh, to uh, meet. Thanks very much for the overview, Jean-Charles. The scope of the loi de vigilance is clearly much more than what we currently have in other parts of Europe. Now, we all know that this piece of legislation has sparked a lot of criticism. With that in mind, it would be interesting to know what impact the law had so far on the economy. Did the concerns that have been raised materialize in practice? Obviously, uh, implementing uh, the loi sur le devoir de vigilance uh, represented a certain cost uh, for uh, the companies uh, concerned. Uh, it is obviously burdensome. But no French company, uh, having implemented the uh, vigilance plan, uh, can be considered as uh, having a disadvantage, a competitive disadvantage vis-à-vis uh, -vis its uh, competitors, and uh, there is no significant uh, financial impact uh, at the end of the day. And there is another way to look at it, uh, and it is that uh, French companies are probably uh, in advance vis-à-vis. Uh, uh, their competitors who potentially uh, might uh, find themselves uh, faced with the same obligations in the future. The other aspect of your question, I think, uh, is uh, whether or not uh, these companies are faced with uh, many uh, litigation. And the answer is yes. Uh, well, it's been a year now uh, since uh, the law is fully uh, enforced, and uh, there is a little bit less than uh, 10 uh, litigation or pre-litigation uh, launched by uh, associations. These uh, disputes uh, concern uh, very large French companies, and they have concerned uh, all the aspects of the uh, duty of vigilance, i.e. employees' uh, working conditions, environment, and human rights. Thanks, Jean-Charles. It's very interesting to hear and, and probably a good outlook on what we might expect in other companies um, in the future. Now, we can certainly go much, much deeper into the subject, but let's leave it there for today. From the legal developments in France, the Netherlands and Switzerland, but also from the current discussions in Germany and at the EU level, I think it's clear that the trend is moving quite fast from reporting to action and that companies 
should watch this space closely. I sincerely hope that you were able to take some food for thought with you um, and finally would like to warmly recommend the other podcasts that we're planning as part of the series. Amongst others, they will address the current consultation process at EU level and the number of practical issues. For example, we'll discuss what companies should focus on in M&A transactions, how you systematize BHR due diligence and how you go about doing due diligence when you're key counterparties. So stay tuned. <laughs>